If you'll turn to Job chapter 42 this morning, we have arrived at the end of the book of Job. Job 42, life revolves around relationships. And again, we've talked about this as we've looked at the book of Job. The book of Job is less about what happened to Job. It's less about why it happened to Job. And it's more about Job himself. The way Job is changing, we are going to see an incredible change in the life and the attitude of Job this morning. And not only the way Job is changing, but how Job's relationship with God is changing. Job's going to grow throughout this experience. Job, in chapter 42, is going to become closer to the Lord. And when you think of God's testimony of Job in chapter 1, it's amazing when you find Job is going to be closer to the Lord at the end of the book than he was in the beginning. God looked at Job and said, Job is blameless. Job hates evil, and he chases after that which is good. Job fears me, but at the end of the book, Job's going to learn a few more things about who God is, about how God works, about what it means for God to be sovereign, that word that we keep using. And this whole book is going to help us figure out a little bit as we come to the end about our relationships, our relationship with God. How do you relate with God? We're going to talk a little bit about how we need to as we get to the end of this book. Our relationships with family and friends. In the middle of this chapter, it's going to talk about Job's relationship with family and friends that he was a little bit estranged from. How do we handle those things? Our relationships with our neighbors and our community. All of these relationships that impact our lives are things that need to be looked at through the lens of Scripture. As I was preparing to finish the book of Job this week, I turned to uh, Leighton Talbot's commentary again and was just struck with the story that I want to share with you now because as he finished the book, he talked about Elizabeth Elliot. Y'all remember Elizabeth Elliot? Some of you are old enough to remember when she lost her husband on the beaches to the Indians sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I thought of that story as he shared this. Elizabeth Elliot wrote, as I look back on that time, I think it was lesson one for me in the school of faith. That is, it was my first experience of having to bow down before that which I could not possibly explain. That lesson came in the Ecuadorian rainforest, but it was not the famous story of her husband's murder. In fact, it was the murder of her sole translator when she was a young single missionary in Ecuador. And she wrote of that time, usually we need not bow. We can simply ignore the unexplainable because we have other things to occupy our minds. We sweep it under the rug. We evade the questions. But now, there were no rugs left. No other feelings to occupy my mind. Nothing to distract. Nothing but questions. And leisure to turn them over and over and over in my mind. For Elizabeth Elliot, as for Job, and for many of God's people since, life suddenly slammed to a stop. And part of the reason we love the book of Job is because most of us are going to experience that sometime. Whether it's medical reasons, family reasons, health reasons that are beyond our control, financial reasons, relationships that go haywire, something's going to bring life to a crashing stop. And what do we do with it at that time? Face most severe tests come not when I see nothing, But when I see a stunning array of evidence, it seems to prove that my faith may be in vain. And that's where Job is. That's what Job has been struggling with. That's where Elizabeth Elliot was. And she writes, if God were God and if he were omnipotent, and if he had cared, would this have happened? Have you ever had that in your life? 
As we get to the end of the book, we need to figure out how do we grapple with this? How do we figure out what's going on? Because often we come to the point that Elizabeth Elliot did in her life when she asked herself this, in the face of what I am going through now, is this the reward for my obedience? Because we feel like God owes us something if we're obedient to him. And God, for chapter after chapter at the end of this book, is looking at Job and saying, Job, the Almighty God does not owe you a thing. Anything you get from me is for my benevolence, my grace, and it is unowed. It is because I love you and for no other reason than that. You aren't getting what you get because it's owed. Because again, remember we talked about this earlier in the book. What would you get if you got what God owes you? For the wages of your sin is death. How many of you want what's owed? We want mercy. We want grace. And God's going to finish this book with an amazing amount of mercy and grace. And it was exciting to get to the end. And I know most of you know the last chapter in the book. You know the last paragraph. All's well that ends well. But don't lose the amazing picture of God as we make that final step in the journey. Because that's what is impressed upon Job's mind as we get there. Elizabeth Elliot goes on to talk about the struggle that she had and said, one turns in disbelief from the circumstances and looks into the abyss. But in the abyss, there's only darkness. No glimmer of light. No answering echo. It was a long time before I came to realize that it is in our acceptance of what is given, whatever that may be, that God finally gives himself back to us. This grief, this sorrow, this total loss, it empties my hands, it breaks my heart. I may, if I will, accept it. And by accepting it, I find in my hands something to offer back to God. And so I give it back to him, who in a mysterious exchange gives himself back to me. That's what Job is about to experience. Job, for chapters, has been anguishing over God. Why have you dealt with me the way you have? Job's friends came, and they were anything but a help. And God's got some words for Job's friends at the end of this. And in the meantime, Job is still grappling with the whys of all of this and trying to figure out. And he makes his case, and we went back into chapter 38 where he said, There, case is finished, God, now you answer me. Job was at the height of arrogance when he looked at God and said, God, you owe me an explanation. Job's no longer there after God speaks with him in chapter 42. So we get to chapter 42, and the first phrase we read there is, Then Job answered the Lord. Now, Job has been preparing this answer for how long? How many of you want to go back to chapter 3 and go through Job's answer the whole time? I mean, we've been going through several months of what Job wants to say to God. And when Job gets to talk to God, what Job wants to do is vindicate himself. He wants God to declare him not guilty. And what Job is going to receive is so gracious and so merciful from God, it's going to be so much better than that. Job has no idea what's coming as he answers God in chapter 42, verse 1. And so as we see this, we need to realize that how does Job get to what we're about to see? Because we're going to see a very different Job in a few moments. How does he arrive from chapters 3 through 39, 40, 41 to chapter 42 where everything changes in Job's heart and mind? Because Job comes face to face with God's might and God's insight. God's antiquity and his awareness of all that happens. God's majesty, God's sovereignty. And in his sovereignty, he's learning something about God that he didn't really realize before. God, in his freedom, can do what God wants to do. 
God doesn't owe us anything. God is free to do whatever he wants to do with our life. And it's more than enough to humble Job in chapter 42. Job is going from the height of arrogance in about chapter 38 to the lowest of humble and submissiveness in chapter 42. And it makes all the difference in his life. And so we get to chapter 42 and it says, Job answered the Lord. And he says in verse 2 this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We're going to talk here as we look through this and Job's restoration about his relationship with God. And God, Job begins by saying, God, I know this about you. Number one, I know that you can do all things. Now, doesn't that sound like Job is attributing to God omnipotence? You are all powerful. It's much deeper than that. Did Job ever question whether God was all powerful in this book? In all of his questioning, that was his problem. He said, I serve an all-powerful God, so how could this which shouldn't be happening to me be happening? He never questions God's power. And it's not really God's omnipotence per se that Job is going to be talking about here because he, he explains it at the end of that verse. The second phrase of it says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job is not only acknowledging God's power, but Job is going further than that. Saying God in his sovereignty can do anything that he chooses. In his freedom, he does everything that he purposes. Did Job know that already? Did Job know that God can do anything that God purposes to do? Yeah, if we look back, he did. You know what Job's going to learn? We're going to look further and we're going to see what Job's going to learn here because he's going to say, beginning in verse 3, Who is this that hides, knowledge without, hides counsel without knowledge? He starts quoting God. And he's going to say how it impacted him. He goes on further and says, Who is this who hides this counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Does this sound like the Job of Job chapter 3 through Job chapter 38? Job thought he had it all. Job was ready to go to court with God. And Job gets to chapter 42, and now after hearing God and all that God has to say, Job begins to realize that his take on all of this has been wrong. Because Job already knew God could do anything, theoretically. You know, theologically, we look at this book and we say, God can do anything he wants to do, but when it comes to actuality and experience in my life, we're not ready to let that go. God, you can do anything you want to do, but do it in their life, not mine. Don't get my attention with health issues, financial issues, family issues, taking somebody that I love away from me and taking them on into eternity, whatever it may be. And Job has looked and said, God, I know you can do this, but I don't like that you did it to me. And Job is going from a theological, theoretical knowledge to an experience where he's saying, God, if you're truly God, you can do anything you want. So humble my heart and let me accept whatever you decide is best for me. And Job has just changed and turned a whole corner when he gets to that point. Job has learned to believe God with or without the evidence that he needs to see. He's learned to submit to God with or without the understanding that he is both sovereign and good. He learns to worship God with or without the reward because he is worthy. And when we do those things, Job's going to find that when we Believe God, submit to God, and worship Him whether or not we see the results we want in our lives. God brings a peace that passes all understanding. 
that Job is about to experience. But not only does he bring it to our lives, he demonstrates to a world a peace that only God can give in the midst of difficulties, and he glorifies his name through that. And Job is going to get there now in verse, finally in chapter 42, as he works through who God is and what God's doing. And he admits in verse 3, he admits some things by quoting God and then giving us his final take on it. We talked about this a second ago, but who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Who was God talking to when he said that? Who is this that brings counsel and doesn't know what he's talking about? That's what he's saying. Did Job believe that when he first heard it? Does Job believe that now? Job considers what God has said, and Job says this to the answer to that. He said, who is this that hides knowledge without understanding? In the end of the verse, he said, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Until we come to the point that we realize that God knows more than we know, God has a better plan than we have, we will struggle. And Job thought he had a better plan. Job didn't like God's plan in his life. And now Job said, you know what? When I uttered all those things, I thought I was smarter than I really am. You ever been there? And you know where it's really easy to be smarter than you really are? That's where Job's friends were, weren't they? God's about to make commentary on that too. They weren't even going through it, but they knew what Job needed to do. They had figured it out, so to speak. And then Job says, not only have I learned that Difficult lesson that I don't know as much as I think I do. But look at verse 4. As Job again continues to move through this whole relationship with God, he quotes God in verse 4 and says, Here and I will speak. Job asked for chapter after chapter, God speak to me. And when God began to speak to Job, did he hear what he wanted to hear? What was Job looking to hear? Job, you're not guilty. Job, here is the reason, though you couldn't see it, that all this happened. Did God have those answers? Why doesn't he give them to Job? Because Job's real problem wasn't the fact that he didn't know. Job's real problem was the fact that he wasn't willing to submit to what God was doing in his life. And as God has brought all this, why these stories about Leviathan and Behemoth? Because God was saying, I am in control. Even these beasts that you can't control submit to me. How about you, Job? And and the interesting thing, when we looked at the end of chapter 41, there is no conclusion by God. He just abruptly stops. Why does God stop without... You ever try to argue with somebody through a point and bring them to your point of view? Do you just give them the point and stop? No, when you come to the end, you've got to make them realize why they're wrong and you're right. Why does God not need to do that? Because he looks into Job's heart and he can see what Job's about to do. He can see Job is finally turning the corner. Isn't it interesting? Flip back a little bit. How many chapters does it take Job to turn the corner? God begins speaking when? The beginning of chapter 38. He's got chapters of information and Job's still struggling. You ever been there? Well, God, I I know what you said, but this is what's going on in my life. And so a merciful God, who could have taken Job at any moment, instead spends the time to turn Job's heart from where it was to where it needed to be. To turn Job's focus from where it was to where it needed to be. And so that Job finally gets to this point in verse 4 at the end of that verse. Look what he says there. I will question you and make it known to me. And Job says in verse 5 in response to that, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear. Have you heard God? Hopefully every Sunday morning, at least when you come in, you hear God from the hearing of the ear. 
That's what preaching's all about. If you're not getting God's word from this pulpit, find another pulpit to sit under. Because that's what we ought to be getting here on Sunday morning. What does God say? But Job doesn't stop there. Look what he says. I have heard you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What's Job saying in a very poetic manner? Yeah, I kind of knew the theology, but now it hit the heart. Until this word goes from this place to this place, you will not change. You will be frustrated. You may be self-righteous. Was Job ever self-righteous in this book? You may argue with God because you think you know better, because you've got a better idea, but when this book about God goes from the head to the heart, it changes our lives. It, It humbles us. And look what happens to Job. Job says, Now I have seen it with my eyes, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is suddenly looked and saying, I finally see myself for who I am before an almighty God. And I repent. I repent. Now, was Job ready to repent any other time in this book? Job was innocent of the sin his friends told him he was involved in. Job just wanted God to come and say, Job, you're okay. Your friends don't understand. And here's why it happened. And instead, he listened to Job attack him. Attack God himself and his justice and his righteousness. And God comes and challenges Job with that. And when Job finally takes a step back, he suddenly realizes he was right back in chapter 1 and 2. When he said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Should I receive good things and not evil things from God's hand? And Job remembers And Job remembers who God is. And Job not only remembers, but it goes from the head to the heart. And he repents and he says, Lord, I want that relationship back. And notice, as Job was talking to God all through this book, he had all kinds of strings attached when God was going to talk to him. God, you need to declare me innocent and do this. Take care of this. Work on this. How many strings are attached? How many bargains does Job make with God in verse 6? He said, I repent. I repent in dust and ashes. Now, what would we expect at this point? Job's relationship with God. Has he gotten to where he needs to be? He's humble. He's submissive. He's repented. He looks at Elihu's speech and God's speech and says, you know what? Everything I said about God when I impugned his righteousness in order to lift up mine was wrong. Is Job's circumstances, have they changed a bit? Job's children are still gone. His money is still gone. His prestige is still gone. He's still in dust and ashes. In fact, more so now that he's in repentance. So what happens in verse 7? You would expect to see, in verse 7, God took care of everything and set it straight. What does God do in verse 7? Job's not only has a relationship problem with God, but he's got a relationship problem with his friends at this point, doesn't he? When we're not right with God, guess what? It doesn't take long before we're not right with people around us either. And Job here has a major issue with his friends. But God doesn't attack Job for that. Look what God says in chapter 7 through 9. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now you're sitting there as Job's friends. Did they hear what God said to him? I assume they did. The scripture doesn't tell us. They watched Job change. They 
see Job's repentance before God. Does Job repent for the sins that he did before God took everything away from him? No, because he didn't. So everything they base their argument on is kind of falling apart. And then as God, in their minds, in somewhat in mine as I read the story, ought to be turning to Job and say, Job, I receive you back as one of my own in right relationship with me. I am so excited about the growth in your life. Instead, he turns to those three men and says, my anger burns against you. They just heard who God is. God's in control. He's an almighty, powerful God whose purposes are never thwarted. You want God to look at you and say, my anger burns against you. I don't think I'd want to be one of Job's three friends. And the interesting thing that he says after that, and we've got to think through this for a moment to understand what he says. He said, you've not spoken of me what is right. Were many of the things that his friends spoke of right? Some of them were. Is God going to punish the wicked? He is. Does it pay to be wicked and, and, and stand up against God? No, it doesn't. Not in the long run. Does God bless the righteous? He does. Now, he doesn't always put dollar signs over the S's in blessing. But he blesses the righteous. And so we see all of this going on, and yet God looks and says, you haven't said what was right about me. Because you looked at Job and you concluded that he had sinned when Job never did a thing. And so my anger burns against you. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. If that doesn't grab your heart a little bit, then you haven't been paying attention. We need to go back and start chapter two. We need to start back at chapter one. Because you look at this and he looks at Job and he says, what? Has Job's relationship with God been restored? Yeah, he looks and says, you three characters who are under my wrath, I am angry with you. You take these bulls, and you go, and you offer sacrifice, and you have Job be the one who stands as the priest before me on your behalf. The one that you've been attacking for chapter after chapter, for sin that was not in his life. God vindicates Job. Was that the way Job expected to be vindicated? No, but God's looking and saying, you want to go to a man who's right before me, you go see Job, and you better hope that he takes care of you, because look what he says after this. Not only that, he says, and my servant Job shall pray for you. Now, put yourself in Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz's shoes for a moment. You have been ripping Job apart for days. And you were wrong. God looks at you and he says, I am angry with you. Was Job ever angry with his friends? Did Job ever get sarcastic with his friends? Did Job ever say some pretty pointed, nasty things to his friends? And when God looks and says, I'm angry with you and I'm going to have Job pray for you, I'd be afraid to hear what Job's about to pray. Here come the imprecatory prayers of the psalmist against his enemies. Because Job's got no reason to pray wonderful things of forgiveness and blessing and restoration for his friends. But what is God's intent when he says, Job will pray for you? Job, you're going to pray for forgiveness and blessing and wonderful things for your friends. Was Job ready to do that in Job chapter 35? I, I am amazed that Job, with whatever energy he has left, didn't kick those friends out of there and send them packing. And so what's happening here is God is restoring relationships. And Job, it appears, looking at his speech, if you look back at him, Job had some bitterness over these friends. Job had been attacked by these friends. His friends had let him down. 
His friends had maligned his testimony, his reputation. They'd run him down. You ever have a friend do that? How do you feel about friends when they do that to you? They let him down when he needed them the most. And I fear for many of us in the church because we become very bitter just like Job did, but we never get to the point of chapter 42. Some of us have family members we haven't talked to for years. God's going to deal with that before this chapter's over. Some of us have friends, used to have friends. They're not friends anymore. Because they did us wrong. They hurt us deeply. They spoke about us in an unkind way. They did some things that just hit us in a bad way. And you haven't talked to some of them for years. And as Job gets right with God, God's not even declared Job restored at this point. He said, Job can minister for me now, but as he's doing so, and and it doesn't say that, but Job, here's a test for you. I want you to pray for these friends because my anger burns against them. I guarantee you there was a day when Job would have said, go get them. If your anger's burning, let it fly. These guys have asked for it. But what happens? We go further in this passage, and he says here, For my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For chapter after chapter, Eliaphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have said who was in folly. Job, Job, get it right. Quit being foolish. God looks at these three men and said, Job's the one who's going to pray for you, and I'm going to hear Job's prayer. And they had told Job, read through it again. God won't hear you unless you get this right. Confess. And God's letting them know, Job's okay with me now. But you're not. So he's going to pray. And I'm going to hear on your behalf. For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So these three men... Had one hope, that Job was going to be right enough with God to do what God asked him to do. And Job interceded for his friends. That's forgiveness. I don't see any reluctance in this. I wish I heard Job's prayer. What did Job pray? Again, if it were me, maybe my heart wouldn't be quite where it needed to be yet. You know, Lord, these three rascals, they've come with their sacrifices. And you know how bad they've been to me. I don't think that's how Job prayed. There's no indication of that in here. I think Job went with his humble spirit to God and say, these men need your mercy like I needed your mercy. They need your grace like I needed your grace. And when we look at people that we can't do that for, it's because we've forgotten the mercy and grace that God has given us. And that's what God's demonstrating to Job. Job, for chapter after chapter, you've asked for my wrath. But I forgive you. And mercy, I forgive you. And God's about to deal with Job in an amazing amount of grace as we get to verse 10 after the restoration of his friends because we see God's blessing in Job's life. Now be careful about your theological steps when we get to the next couple verses. This is not health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. God is not telling you if you will only humble yourself before me and confess that I will make you wealthy. There are folks preaching that this morning, I guarantee you. Turn on Joel Olstein, and he'll tell you, you can be whatever you want to be, go wherever you want to do, have whatever success you want, just believe it, and God will take care of it for you. And it's a bunch of bunk. It's not true. God will take care of you, but God has a plan for your life. 
And if he was going to work that way, Job's all life would have turned out differently, but it didn't. It turned out as God had for it. And so as Job looks at these things, as Job looks at these prayers, we see this blessing. And it says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When does that take place in the chapter? To me, that should have been verse 7, shouldn't it? Job humbles himself. He repents before God. He's submissive to whatever God wants in his life. And then God says, okay, Job, here's the first test. I want you to pray for these three rascals who don't deserve it. And Job does. And then God says to him, now, Job, I want you to realize you've been restored. Was Job restored before that? Now, you look at verses 7 and 9. My servant Job, I will hear his prayer. Certainly he was, but the affirmation of it came to Job when he did that which was right in the face of difficult circumstances again. Of praying for these friends who needed his help and his prayer, just like Job had needed theirs. Who needed Job to intercede, just like Job had needed them to intercede. And they let him down and Job didn't. Not because of Job, but because of Job's relationship with God. And so Job looks at these things and here's what God says to Job. And this is what God does for Job in verses 10 through 17. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then he came to him and all his brothers and sisters and all who were before him and ate bread with him in his house. Don't skip by verse 11 without remembering some of what we already handled. When we go through the the, the speeches of Job, Job tells us that his family, his brothers and sisters had all forsaken him. They had all concluded like Job's friend. Job, you've done something really wicked and evil, and we're going to distance ourselves as far as we can, because when the lightning strikes, we don't want to be too close. That's basically where his family had been. And now in verse 11, it says at the end of all this, they came to him, all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before. So family and friends are all coming back, and they ate bread with him in his house. And again, don't discount that, especially in that culture, even somewhat in ours. But eating bread in someone's house was an intimate time of fellowship. That's where you shared your hearts. That's where you got to know people. And again, I could be a little bit guilty of getting sidetracked and not wanting to do this all the time. But my wife was constantly pushing my kids and I not to watch a ball game during dinner, but to eat at the table. Why? Not just to keep the mess all in one location, although it did that. But there was fellowship that took, your hearts were bonded there. You got to know one another there. And that's what's happening is Job's friends and his family all come back and they're sitting under his house and they're eating at his table. And then it goes on further and it says, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon them. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. They're actually bringing stuff for him. Does he need their stuff? No, but it's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of restoration that's taken place. It already said God's going to give him double of what he had. What does it mean by that? Well, we look on and we go through this, and it says in verse 12, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Again, we have to ask ourselves, why? Did Job suddenly deserve it? And the only answer that we're going to be, because God doesn't tell us exactly, why did he double it? Could he not have just given him back what he had before? Well, did he have to give him back any of it? Would Job have been content just to be right with God at this point? I think if you read his speeches, you'd have to say, yes, that's what he wanted, more than anything. But God in his grace and mercy looks at Job and says, tell you what I'm going to do because I'm a sovereign God and my purposes are mine and I can do whatever I want to do. And so he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to double everything. 
And so it goes on and it explains to us. If you go back in chapter 1 and verse 3, you'll see that he used to have 7,000 sheep. Now God gives him 14,000 sheep. You go further and you, he used to have 3,000 camels. God gives him six. He used to have 500 oak of oxen. God gives him 1,000. He used to have 500 female donkeys. God gives him 1,000. And then verse 13. And there's somebody conspicuously missing from this list and I have no I have no explanation for it but he says here in verse 13 and he also had seven sons and three daughters how many sons and daughters did he have before seven sons and three daughters and God's doubling all that he has and he gives him seven sons and three daughters what happened Job didn't lose those first ten God had them waiting but God gave him seven more sons and three more daughters by which wife I w- again, God doesn't owe me an explanation, but I wish I had the rest of the story. Is this the same wife who told Job to curse God and die? Possibly. And again, God's working in this whole family. Not only that, but it's interesting that he says this. And again, God's just being gracious and telling us what he's up to here. It says in verse 14, he called the name of the first uh, daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And you look at those names, and depending on who you read, they think it means a little bit different in the Hebrew, so there's some debate, but basically it means these are beautiful women. The idea here is is makeup and joy and coloring, and he even goes on to say here that um, in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Not only did God give him three more daughters, but he gave him the most beautiful daughters in all the land. How would you like to be the first three daughters? We're never told what they look like. But here we are. God's just blessing. Why? Because God decided to do so. Because he's a sovereign God who does as he pleases. And he's blessing Job. And again, not just it's not an equation. So don't look at Job and say, okay, all I have to do is humble myself. And God's going to double my money. He's going to give me more kids. He's going to give me beautiful kids, not ugly kids. Whatever it is. And that's not, but God is pleased to do this in Job's life. And so he's doing these things for Job. And it goes on to say here, in verse 16, And after this, Job lived 140 years. How old was Job before this? It kind of gives us a clue as to when Job lived. It had to be in the time of the patriarchs or a bit before. Because after all this took place, he lives another 140 years. So Job's been living a long time. And in those 40 years, look at what God underlines. When we went through that first chapter, I told you one of the hardest things for Job was probably to lose his entire family in one fell swoop. And so in 140 years, it says he saw his sons and his son's sons, four generations. Job saw his sons, his grandsons, his great-grandsons, his great-great-grandsons. And the joy that that brings us is the joy that he's now experiencing. In verse 17 it says, And Job died an old man, full of days. God restored him. His friends had accused him of terrible sins. His friends had let him down. His friends had hurt him deeply. And God came and restored all of that. And his spirit as well. We, we see no bitterness in the life of Job at the end of this book. Bitterness will tear apart your life. It'll ruin your relationship with God. It did for Job. It'll ruin your relationship with others. It did that to Job as well. And God resolves all of that because Job looks and Job took care of the source of the bitterness. So often we want to treat the symptoms and not the source. What was Job's source of problems here? 
Was it bitterness? I would say that's a symptom. Was it depression? And Job was depressed. I would say that's a symptom. They're all warning lights. The warning lights like on the dash of your car. You ever see that engine light come on? You know, the one that you ignore way too long? It comes on because there's a problem. The light is a symptom. I've heard, I've heard guys tell me, mechanics, old-time mechanics, yeah, the engine light comes on, so I'm going to pull the bulb. Will that resolve the problem? No, and here Job, Job could say, you know, Lord, I don't want to be bitter anymore. It's like, Job, that's not the problem. Lord, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be discontent anymore. Job, that's not your problem. They're all symptoms. The problem is you're not submissive to my working in your life as a sovereign God. The reason you're bitter is because you don't like what I brought into your life. The reason you're discouraged, the reason we get depressed, and Elizabeth Elliot hit it on the head. The reason those things happen is because when they happen, we play them over in our mind, over and over and over again. And we pray, God, take this away when God's saying, I want you to move through this with me. I'm not taking it away yet. And we get discouraged and we get anxious and we get depressed and we worry. And then we go see somebody, a mental health professional who gives us a drug and say, here, this will take care of you. And it won't. I am so concerned with a lot of God's people. If Job had lived in our day and age, where would people have sent him before chapter 42? Job, you need to go see the doctor. They can give you something for this. Job's problem wasn't medication. Job's problem was his relationship with God. He had all those other problems, and those drugs will take the edge off it. They'll keep you from thinking through all those problems and rolling it over and over in your mind. But many, many, many Christians are depending on that and not getting rid of the source of the problem. And those doctors will tell you, you're going to be on this drug for the rest of your life. You will if you don't get rid of the source of the problem. And Job has dealt with the source of the problem. Is, is God allowed to be sovereign in your life or is he not? But God, I don't like the fact that... Ben wasn't very kind this morning, okay? But how many of you like the fact that you have trouble getting out of bed in the morning now and you never used to have that problem? You know, I'm, I'm starting to get to the point where I understand it. I used to laugh at all these older guys who tell me, oh boy, I'm so afraid I'm going to roll out of bed in the morning and can't get up. And I'd laugh at them. And now I start thinking, boy, I'm getting to the age if I roll out of bed in the morning, am I going to be able to get up? How many of you like that? How many of you like losing your balance? How many of you like having issues with your heart? How many of you like going to the doctor and hearing, I think you may have cancer? I think you may have leukemia. I think you may have any number of things that you can't change. And we get those reports and we look at an almighty God and we believe he's almighty. And that's the problem. We don't doubt God's power. We say, God, if you are really omnipotent, then why is this happening to to me? And that was Job's problem throughout the book. And God said, Job, you don't need the why. You need to get right with the who. And trust me. Because these chapters before, where God spoke, he said, I've got it covered. I take care of the entire world. If the sun comes up tomorrow, you ought to get up and thank God that he's still in control. That's why it came up. If you have food to eat because the harvest comes in, God's in control of all that. All of these animals that God takes care of, I love them. They're about to leave again. One of my favorite birds are kind of like the bunkers. You know, it's the hummingbirds. They come in when it's warm. They leave when it starts getting cold. 
And I look at those hummingbirds, and they shouldn't even be able to fly. They're too fat to fly with those little wings. But they get all over the place. And then when I'm giving them trouble for being fat, they stick that long tongue out at me. You know. But you look at these things and think, God's got that covered. They know when to leave. They know when to come back. They come back to our house almost on cue. You know, I know about this time in the spring, you know, about this day, they're going to start showing up. And so I'll get the feeder out because I don't want them to go someplace else. And while I'm gone in Nebraska, they're going to go. They're going to be gone. And God does all that. And God looks and says, if I can do that, can I not take care of you? And it's a matter of faith and a matter of submission and a matter of humility. So as we get to the end of this book, I almost hesitate to do this because don't we like this story to be all's well that ends well? Well, all's well that ends well for Job. But how about for you? If you can come to the point that Job came to at the beginning of chapter 42 and say, God, whatever you have in store for me, I'm ready. It may not be my choice. It may not be my plan. But I'm going to put my life in the hands of an almighty God who knows. Who not only knows, but according to what you told you care. You're a benevolent God. And even when it doesn't feel like it, and I don't have the answers, God, give me a submissive, humble spirit to say whatever you have for me is the path I want to walk in because you are the almighty, benevolent, merciful, gracious God, and you do have my best interest at heart. Let's pray. Father, what a book to travel through. What a choice servant of yours Job was. And Lord, we thank you for the look that we've had into the life of Job. Job was a godly man. He was a blameless man. He feared you, but Job wasn't a perfect man. He struggled in many ways, in the ways that we struggle from time to time. God, I pray that you'll work in our hearts and help us to learn the lessons that Job learned. Lord, I pray that it'll take us less time to learn some of those lessons, that we may be submissive to you, that we may see you for who you are, and Lord, that we may remember that, number one, you don't owe us any explanations for the way you work in our lives. And number two, anything good that happens is not because you owe us, but it's your grace and mercy. We thank you for a gracious, merciful, benevolent God who always does what is right and who has our best interests at heart. God, help us to trust you through all of the difficulties and suffering in life that we may see you move, see your hand, and take it from our head and drive it deep into our hearts. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.